0: You're listening to the St John's Diamond Creek Podcast, recorded live each Sunday at St John's Anglican Church, Diamond Creek. This episode presented by Del Matthews. Well today we continue on our series on conflict. Tonight we're talking about how to develop a a culture of peace in our church. But I need to say up front that I had a lot of difficulty preparing this sermon. In fact, I've had a lot of difficulty right through the series because my personality type hates conflict. I don't even like it in the mild form that we call competition. You could say I've got a kind of a phobia of conflict. And like any other phobia, I avoid it like the plague. And if I see conflict coming, I just run. Well, I've been reading a book lately called Quiet, as in quiet personalities, and that book validates, using statistics and everything, my personality type. The introvert people are generally very conflict-averse. But we're told that extroverts, on the other hand, absolutely relish competition, and if there's a conflict, more often than not, they're in there for the fight. Well, sometimes the church and its just like the extroverts and they're in there for the fight. Give it all you've got and get on with it. You've just got to read the TMA out there. Just get onto any of the church websites and you'll find out all the controversies the church is into. But sometimes the church has adopted a culture more like my personality. You can see it in history. If you don't like the church? Just leave it. Just walk away. Just run away. Or start a new church. Just deny it. Until the media finds out about it and calls us up to account. But is there a better way? Is there a healthy response to the church that the church can have to conflict? What does it mean to develop a culture of peace in our church? When I started to think about culture, I was taken back to my university days. I studied anthropology on two occasions actually. The first one, my first lecturer, was at Sydney University, and I remember him announcing one day that he was an atheist, but of course he was an Anglican. Well, the second lecturer did a lot better. Uh, He was a Filipino, but I studied in the USA under him. He was not an atheist, which was just as well, because I was training to be a missionary at the time. But I do remember the feedback on my first essay. He told me that I had not understood that culture is all about worldview. Now, I was very disappointed in my grade and a bit miffed, but he was right. Culture is not just about what we can see, although the anthropologists tell us, yes, it is the surface behavior and artifacts, but it is, more importantly, it is also the worldview that is underneath what you can see. That's the assumptions that shape our values and our behaviour. Well, we learn our culture from our elders. Now, we often question the practice of our culture, especially when we're young, but we rarely demand proof of the assumptions that underlie the in, that are in the worldview that underlie our behaviour. What keeps us from following the, the culture of our day is kind of like a habit of culture. Without ever questioning the underlying worldview, we know when our worldview has been violated when we feel kind of a sense of outrage or repulsion at some sort of behaviour. So, if we take an example in Australia, we hold to the basic assumption that a child has the right to a happy and secure life. So, we outlaw child labour. Instead, we we build schools, we build playgrounds, we do have, play, have child activities. Now, we know this is a really deep assumption in our culture when we find ourselves outraged when we hear about a child being abused in any way. So back to my first question, how do we create a culture of peace in in the church? In our passage today, we heard Jesus praying that we, that's us believers, might be one. So the underlying worldview of a culture of peace is the power of one. Now, when I say the power of one, what comes to mind with that phrase? Mostly, we think of one being equal to an individual, a single person. We tend to think of one as an individual because the underlying worldview of the Western culture places a very high value on the rights and potential of the individual. That phrase first came into popular use after the novel of that name, The Power of One, by Bryce Courtney. uh, If you're old enough, you might have seen the movie in the 1990s. It's a story of a single boy, an individual, who was bullied dreadfully at boarding school, but he eventually met up with his nemesis again as an adult. They met in a pub and had an all-out fight. This time, the boy won. uh, He won, and he carved his initials in the other man's flesh. He had won that victory. But, of course, in the intervening years, he'd learned to overcome failure and he'd learned to box. The story is about an individual triumphing in conflict. That's considered to be the power of one. The problem is with the definition. You see, when one equals an individual, when a conflict comes along, that generally means one person is the winner and one is the loser. But we don't want to be like that in our church. We don't want to be coming out on top of one and we don't want bloodshed in our church. But for us us Christians, we're given a different understanding of one in the Bible. So the Bible makes it clear that to be a Christian is to be at peace with God and to be personally reconciled with him and have an individual relationship with him. But the Bible also makes it clear that we Christians are not alone. The Bible likens us to a body. And I always say that once you're a Christian, by default, you're part of the body. We're interconnected and we're interdependent. So a dismembered body is a dead one. To be truly alive, individually and collectively, we, are, we need to be connected to each other. Being connected to each other, of course, opens up the possibility of conflict. That can range from you know, minor coordination problems, to all-out war when the body gives way to cancer and the cells eat each other up. So science is continuing to tell us how one part of the body is linked to another. And I had a good example this morning. It was cold out at St. Michael's this morning, and the blood drained out of my fingers so that my fingers went all white. The problem was, well, I've got Rayner's syndrome, the problem was not my fingers or my hands. I didn't need gloves on. The problem was my vital organs were getting very cold, and the blood was rushing from my fingers to keep my vital organs going. Now, if my fingers had done done their job early in the morning and put more layers of clothing on, my whole body would have been happy. One part of my body was impacted by another, and one part of the body of Christ is impacted by the other. Jesus tells us here that if we are united, there are benefits. Our ministries will be much more united and fruitful and the rest of the world will know that God really did send him. Our witness is dependent on our unity as a body. That's the power of one. But it first takes a shift in our worldview as Christians from being, seeing ourselves as a group of individuals that come together on a Sunday to being a community. You see, when Jesus prayed that believers would be one, he was thinking of calm unity What would that look like? Well, Jesus goes on to explain that unity among believers looks just like the relationship Jesus had with God the Father. So let me unpack that a little bit. God the Father and Jesus are one, and yet they're both distinguishable. You can tell each from each other. Jesus is said to be in God the Father, and God is in Jesus. So much so that when Jesus came to earth, he said he had come to do the will of the Father. And yet the Gospel writers, when they often reported on Jesus' activities, said God was at work, not Jesus. Like the oneness of the Godhead, being a Christian doesn't mean that we need to lose our individual identity and somehow become clones of each other. We maintain our diversity just as parts of the body are different from each other. But we're in Jesus and therefore one with God the Father. Unity first comes by being in Jesus and being reconciled to God. Now we're only, um, only one in Christ because of his reconciling love and forgiveness to each of us individually, not because of anything we've done. So we're all on the same footing here. No one is less deserving or more deserving of being in. We all need his grace and forgiveness, and we all need his love. And that love is the very same love that God had for Jesus. I think that's amazing. Being being one has to do with love, the love that God had for Jesus and the love that the Godhead has for us. So while the underlying assumption of a culture of peace is that we are one in God's love, that oneness still needs to be observable it should be seen in our behavior in our love for one another in our actions that express love in our effort to resolve any disputes that threaten our unity we're meant to manifest god's character in our relationships that's what's referred to as god's glory anthropologists tell us that in a culture that assumes individuals actions are, are one equals an individual's act The actions are all about winning honor for the individual and avoiding shame for the individual. It doesn't matter what it costs to other individuals, and conflict comes when the desires of two individuals clash. Now, if I see two people having a conflict in a a culture like that, then I don't mind because that's their business. It's none of my business. But in societies and cultures where one equals community, it's different. The individual's actions are all about bringing honour to the community. And if if an individual does something wrong, it brings shame to the community. People are concerned about the whole community in what what they're doing. When a conflict arises in one of those societies, it's the business of the whole community. And the whole community suffers until it's sorted. Now, if we talk about being a Christian community, on top of that, top of thinking about the whole community, we're also concerned about how our actions bring glory and honor to God. We don't want to bring shame to the name of God. So if it's true that what keeps us following the cultural script is kind of a habit, then collectively we need to change our habits. How does that work in the light of what we've been doing in this series? Well, firstly, I think we, we take it at two levels. We take it individually. We can personally find opportunities to learn what more to be what it, like, what it means to be like Christ and to learn to think about how our behaviour impacts the whole community, even when we're not together. How does my behaviour at home, my behaviour at work, my behaviour outside of church impact the community of the church? And then secondly, when we do experience conflict, we can seek to live out the principles we've been talking about in the last few weeks. The more we do this as individuals, the more likely a culture of peace will become the norm. It's just the way we do things around here. But can these principles be implemented on a whole church-wide scale, on a community scale? I believe they can. Now, they may not solve all the communi- all the problems, conflict problems that we have, but certainly help to work towards that. Firstly, as a community, as a church, we need to keep God at the centre of our community life. All that we do as a community should be done to glorify him. We can encourage each other to grow more like Christ and we can both individually and collectively think about the things that are um, not like Christ and get the log out of our own eyes before we start to look at others. Sometimes that needs to be done as a church we need to acknowledge that we've got it wrong together we should open up be open to having our underlying assumptions challenged and made more like Christ's to understand oneness as he did let me tell you a story from history about 5 exactly 500 years ago martin luther could see there were problems in the catholic church and i'll just tell you about one little problem the Catholic Church at that time was pushing what they call indulgences. You could buy an indulgence, which was basically a piece of paper that bought a little bit of fast-tracked your dead relative to go to heaven. They had less time in purgatory, and they'd get to heaven faster. The Catholic Church was making money on this and building, you know, cathedrals and that sort of thing from it. Martin Luther said, "That's wrong. There are a whole lot of things he said that were wrong. He posted a a number of things up on the church door and that started what we know as the Reformation. Now, it caused a church split and we went into the Protestant churches that we're part of and the Catholic Church. But what was interesting was there were a number of people still in the Catholic Church who said, he's right, that's wrong. And they started to think about it and started to make a lot of voices about it. And the Catholic Church gradually acknowledged that indulgences were wrong Their underlying assumptions were wrong and they changed over the time. So the Catholic Church had its own little reformation as well. Churches can change. It's about committing ourselves both on a private and a community level that we're going to resolve disputes when they arise. It's going to be a lot easier to go through the steps resolving a private conflict if we're part of a whole community that supports us. And a community community that... Seeks to resolve conflicts regularly, so I'm not going to be surprised if you come up to me and seek to resolve a conflict because that's the way we do things around here. And we all know that our actions, our individual actions, impact the whole church. We can support in each other, support and encourage each other. It's not about taking sides; it's just about support. It might mean that if a private dispute can't be resolved, the church needs to assist. And we can certainly see instances of that happening in the New Testament if you keep reading. Now, I don't want to sound too simplistic, it's not easy. Perhaps the hardest thing we'd have to do as a community is to fully forgive and be reconciled with members who have genuinely repented, no matter whether it was just some minor dispute or some really serious and really embarrassing sin. There'll be times when we, ha- we might disagree over an issue. Uh, and there'll be times when there's no clear guidelines in Scripture, but those times we we do need to repent of our actions the way we've treated others in the in the dispute. If we're going to ha- um, if we come together and fully accept those back people back into our fellowship, back into our church, and we can live out that amazing reconciliation that we've had with God and show others what reconciliation is really. Really like as we're reconciled with each other, we can show the world what it truly means to be one in Christ, secure in His love for us. The early church had lots of conflict, and I can only I'll only talk about one, but you can read the whole New Testament and find its riddled with the conflict of the church. The church, the early church, consisted of a whole lot of different ethnic groups, and they never mixed prior to coming together as Christians. So that was. A recipe for trouble, we might say. We're told, however, that they came together as a community. They had everything in common. They met daily to worship and to break bread. They ate together in each other's homes. But it was only a matter of days, maybe weeks, before they hit their very first conflict. And it was over the distribution of food. It wasn't even a matter of doctrine and theology. It was just distribution of food. So what did they do? Well, they didn't avoid the conflict like I would have, Neither did they get in there and fight it out like others might want to. They took the complaint to the apostles who were the leaders of the church at that time and the apostles got the whole group together. They put a proposal to the church. This wasn't an edict. They didn't hand down the law. They put a proposal. The idea pleased the whole group and they got some consensus. The group moved on. And the very next verse after the book of Acts reports this story, it says, So the word of God spread. Just as Jesus had predicted, being and acting one resulted in others coming to know him. That's the power of one. We're not there yet. Developing a culture of peace isn't easy, and it it will take time. Shortly, well, what I want you to think about is some of what we, some of our practices that we do have in the church. If you have a communion service on one, on one Sunday night, you'll find that we refer to peace all the way through it. We have this practice in the communion service where we get up and we share the pre- greeting of the peace and we shake hands with each other. I would suggest to you that we can continue being Anglican in our outward actions, whatever they may be, just like my first anthropology lecture, or we can choose to fully embrace what it means to be like Christ and in Christ and seek to make that oneness observable to the whole world beyond simple greetings on a Sunday evening. Jesus prayed for us that we would come to complete unity, that the world would know that he loves us and that the sa- with the same love that God loved Jesus. it seems to me that if Jesus needed to pray for our unity, then it's a prayer we ought to be praying as well. And I'd like to do that now. I'd like to close by praying for us. Father God, we do just thank you that through what Jesus did for us on the cross, we can be reconciled to you. That is amazing that we can have forgiveness in our lives and know your love. We thank you for that. We recognise Lord now that uh, we are in the body of Christ and we thank you that we can be in community with each other but we know that we have a long way to go and we pray Lord for unity, for complete unity just as Jesus did. We pray that you would work in us individually uh, to be more like Christ and together as a body that we might might give honour and glory to you in all our actions and in the way we deal with conflict. In Jesus' name I pray.